I have this refrigerator magnet (laughs) that says something like, passion is not something that you're born with. Like, you have to build your passion. So I don't actually think you should expect that you know what you want to do. I think you stumble on these paths and you build your own character as you mature. You know, that's definitely my own experience. This is Tectonics, the podcast focused on the people and passion at the intersection of technology and health. In graduate school, Karen Hong's dream of becoming a biologist crashed into the reality that she couldn't stand working in lab. Wait a minute. Got it. Undaunted, Karen pivoted into venture and hasn't looked back. This is Tectonics. I'm Lisa Sunan. And I'm David Shaywitz. And today's show is sponsored by Metadata. Metadata, the intelligent platform for life sciences that closes the loop between clinical development and commercialization to power smarter treatments and healthier people. So, Lisa. Oh, my goodness, David, yes. So this show is really special. Do you know why, Lisa? I do know why, David. (laughs) Yes. It is very exciting because this is our 100th episode. I know. Can you believe it? We started in January of 2015. (laughs) Yeah. So low those four plus years ago. I know. I mean, and it's really cool. I I, I fervently fervently believe in the tectonics bounds as uh, all these, Amy Amy Abernethy, right, is now sort of a big mocker at the FDA and all sorts of folks. So it's... It uh, is amazing. It is amazing. So much fun. It's almost as fun as the thought that this sounds like the Monty Python theme. I know. <laughs> Hanging out with you and doing this is really just just the most fun. It's it is terrific super, super thing, fun. And I'm so excited about it. I'm Indeed. Also, also especially excited. Do you like that transition? Oh, that was to very welcome, nice. To welcome today's guest. Who smooth. I, smooth operator. <laughs> uh, who I met when I joined the um, TVI team and who recently left to join Novo Ventures. I was especially keen to invite Karen on the show, not only because of her obvious sophistication around life science entrepreneurship and investing, and not only, it would have been enough, (laughs) and not only because I think her career journey is particularly interesting, but because she has a way of talking about her decisions in a refreshingly canted and down-to-earth fashion, and I thought that our listeners were sure to appreciate. So with that, welcome Karen Hung. Welcome, Karen. Thank you. I'm so honored to be on your show. There you go. Wow. <laughs> you know, I'm sure words can't do it justice. Yeah, so, really. <laughs> so, Karen, as I understand it, as I understand it, um, and, you know, if maybe um, foreshadowing your ultimate interest in genetics, you chose your own genes quite wisely. Your dad was something like the smartest kid in Taiwan, a legendary wonderkind. <laughs> apparently, who had come to the U.S. to pursue grad school at Caltech. And your mom, also super bright, had come to the U.S. to pursue a Ph.D. in Chinese literature at the University of Washington. After a bit of moving around, you basically grew up in the Bay Area, where your dad was a Silicon Valley entrepreneur. You've described growing up with your younger sister, Nancy, who now is also a VC, by the way, and told me that what impressed you most about your parents was their hustle. Can you go into that? Uh, absolutely. Yes. I, it, you know, it sounds, it sounds great when you tell it. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. But it was, it was super hustle life, um, super immigrant. So yeah, my parents are very much self-made. Um, they came here with nothing and, you know, we were like classic latch kid keys, latch kid kids. And 
we uh, never had cool clothes. <laughs> you know, we used to like shop at Kmart, and like when we had my third sister, like who went into fashion, she like got to shop at Macy's. <laughs> <laughs> the big time. We were, like we were moving up in the world. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> my childhood was like Kmart was super cool, <laughs> and I like yeah. I told David like my dad at some point like he was this super trained chemist, um, electrical engineer, some semiconductor guy. But super entrepreneurial, never um, got professional financing, which is so ironic because he has now two daughters working in venture capital, which is just funny. But <laughs> he had a, a pioneer chicken restaurant in Gilroy. Yeah, tell like, us about this. This is like he's yeah. doing all this Silicon Valley <laughs> stuff. And meanwhile, yeah. there's this Gilroy chicken thing. What's going on? Yeah. <laughs> no, this is like he had a normal, he had his like normal job and he was like doing this like chicken thing on the side. That's awesome. And like we, and this is like how we would spend our weekends. We'd like drive down to Gilroy, and he'd be working the the Pioneer Chicken, and we'd be just like folding these towers of French fry holders. You know, like Nancy and I, we just like we were like we were so idle, like we had nothing to do. Now, now did he? That was. Did, did they offer being Gilroy? Did they offer garlic chicken? They did not. But I mean, we could have had like as much fried chicken as we wanted, but like we quickly. We quickly grew very tired of eating it. Yeah, I can. I can always. I have to say though, I'm finding there's this pattern, um, and I think back to Sack Catherine. Catherine, yeah, 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 that we interviewed, um, who was an immigrant and whose family was very focused on uh, fast food when they arrived in the U.S., and now he's in genetics. So maybe there's, like, a clear pathway here. Yeah, it's like, yeah no, it's funny because, like, Sake was talking about he just was fixated on French fries. But, you know, maybe a variation that we were sort of also hearing is one of the things that you went out of your way to, to emphasize, Karen, when we were chatting was that, um, as, you know, you were saying that you, there's sort of your – in some ways, you had what might be called a sort of a canonical uh, immigrant experience. But then you also said that your parents were not um, – uh, in kind of some of the stories that we've heard from other folks, they weren't like helicopter parents, and they weren't. And your time, they weren't sort of saying you have to succeed for all of us, and or any sort of aspect no, of that. Yeah, no, they were like not like that at all. They were um, super gone. <laughs> they were always <laughs> they were always working, and um, you know. But I knew I, I knew they loved me. They were like really good parents in that regard. I knew they loved me. They were super busy. They were way too busy to like. Well, David and I were talking about sort of modern parenting and like we had none of that. You know, they they didn't know what we were doing. They didn't know where we were doing our homework or not. Wow. They like we had like no organized after school activities. You know? I used to just like when I was, you know, eight, I would come home to an empty house and I would be like freaked out because it was so quiet. And so I would just like take a book and go read in the backyard. And these, this was like large swaths of my childhood were like reading in the backyard. And um, I actually, I actually have very deep humanity, humanity leanings. Like I, when I went to Berkeley, I wanted to be a journalist. Go Bears! But yeah, go Bears! I too went to Berkeley to be a journalist. (laughs) That was my plan too. Um, I know. I was like, I was super thinking, I'm going to go do this. But then, like, my dad was such a scientist, and he. He never told me I had to go into science. You know, he never said this is what you should do. But I, I was just heavily, heavily influenced by just being around him. Like you can't like be his daughter without talking about that kind of stuff. And somehow it just 
I was like drinking them. It was like in the drinking water of my family, but it was never overt. Like they never said you had to do this. That's so interesting because yeah. I mean, I think about my own background. I also went to Berkeley. I I also wanted to be a journalist. And your and dad, my is dad a- was also in uh, you know in uh, science medicine and uh, an entrepreneur and sort of despite all my intentions to absolutely not do the same thing in any way, uh, there I am uh, doing the exact same thing basically. Well, not not being as much an entrepreneur as he, but uh, he ended up also- It is an interesting statement. It's it's funny is how much much of that, you know, human development do you think is sort of ingrained and genetic and how much of it is just, we're not creative enough humans to think of something different. I don't, I mean, I, I don't think that, um, I don't think I was like genetically, I'm not, I'm not a scientist, like genetically, right? Like I'm not this kind of person who I'm going to die if I can't get back into the lab as David, <laughs> I told David, like, that's the dark tunnel of graduate school. <laughs> well, we're going to, we're going to, we're, 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 we'll give yeah. that full voice. We'll come to that. But a lot of the story, what, what Lisa's talking about reminds me of this scene from Young Frankenstein, you know. <laughs> Destiny. 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 No, no escaping destiny. 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 No escaping us. Pretty much what we're saying, no. huh? Pretty much. That's it right there. Well, yep. Mm-hmm. So despite your uh, protestations about science, you beyond found your way to it. You pursued not just science, but this insanely rigorous major chemistry at the College of Chemistry, which is like in super Brutal. hardcore. Brutally. At least it's like, the hell is this I, person I doing? just went miles out of my way to avoid that building on campus, much less uh, entertain entering it. <laughs> and then, you, and then, and then you said, "But that's not enough." Um, uh, so then you added a bachelor's in biology to boot. So what I kind of thought was interesting is when you were describing this. I mean, you, it sounds like you're sort of crushing college, right? But then you said you were academically successful, but but you were honest, and you were saying you really weren't having very much fun at all. Could you tell us, if you would, about that? Yeah, well, I, you know, I went to Berkeley with this kind of thought in my head that, like, I'm going to do both. Like, I'm going to go to this place where I can, like, explore my love of, like, literature and whatnot and also, like, do the science thing because somehow, I, you know, that's what we do in our family. We do this, like, science thing. And so, but then I ended up, like, being hardcore and, like, I'm going to go do chemistry and then I'm going to do chemistry the way the chemists do it. <laughs> you know? And then I'm like, oh, I should just do biology too. And then so it ended up like taking all my credits. And I had like no, I had no time for like, you know, human personal exploration. Like actually doing, like doing what you really want to do, like taking courses that you really are interested in. Not that I didn't, I didn't like the chemistry because I mean, I, I really did. I loved chemistry like as a, as an abstract science, like not the lab part of it, but just like the learning part of it. I really loved it. Um, but yeah, I, I didn't really get to explore, to be honest. Um, and that's probably why I didn't have that much fun. <laughs> and, then you were, and then you were saying that it was kind of, um, despite having so many, you know, what a lo- so many people on campus, this massive campus, you said it wasn't very much fun socially. No, I was always like, work- I was always like, you know, studying, and like, it was, I was very studious as a college. Like, I think that's why I really as a human being, like I blossomed in grad school, even though I hated the lab, like socially, it was so good for me. It was, I had so much more fun 
in grad school. Um, so so that's I, good. So, okay, so let's get to that point. So, so you decided after all of this to get a PhD in biology at MIT. And um, we should mention we overlapped there, <laughs> although we didn't know each other. I think you were a couple, we figured out you were a couple years ago. Yeah, I wasn't after, there. I wasn't yeah. there. <laughs> yeah, at least. But you figured out you were, that, um, that um, Karen was a couple of, I think I started a few years before. Um, and then um, Karen was saying that she, th- she thought it started off really well. And there's this amazing course, which I, I think maybe Karen can talk about, um, that it's just this defining course of the first year biology experience at MIT called Methods and Logic. Um, yeah, or, we, we both like love that course, David and I, like any, and I think anyone who's gone through the graduate program in biology at MIT will remember Methods and Logic. It is so tell, a tell Lisa what it's course. like, yeah. They, so, you know, they actually start to treat you like a peer. It's like for the first time, you're like, we're actually going to train you as a scientist. We're going to teach you how to sit, how to think. We're going to teach you how to critically take apart literature. So they'll give you these like super classic papers in biology. And then, um, you know, some of them will be like results that didn't reproduce. And so it's super interesting but it's also just like, it's like this feeling like you're like, wow, you know, like there's this whole lo- another level to it. It's really, it's really mind, mind opening. What, um, when you're taking apart great works of, of research, you know, literature, um, is that joyful or depressing? I mean, does that make you feel like you would um, want to publish or does that make it's you like, feel like you would want to stay away so that doesn't happen to you? I think it's still super interesting because you don't actually have to generate the data. <laughs> you know, it's the, it's the data generation part that's mind-numbingly, like, soul-crushingly <laughs> difficult. <laughs> but when you're actually, like, just reading how someone else has, like, constructed a logical flow and you're, like, you're really thinking, like, about experimental design, it's at that very conceptual design level, and it's just super interesting. So I, lo- I loved that class. But I think Lisa's point is so interesting because there was something that was really beyond humbling. I mean, humbling really wouldn't do it justice where it's a little bit like, you know, like again in our mm-hmm. usual Princess Bride stuff, you know, Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, morons. And it's a little bit like <laughs> you read all of these famous p- p- papers and it's sort of like, oh, well, this was actually overstated or did this really add up or did this make sense and this was so trendy, but how did this? And you just, I mean, there is a little bit of the ripping so many things to such little shreds that it's, you know, is a, it, it is hard to, I mean, there is sort of this, almost this classic grad school thing where, I mean, what it definitely does is it makes you, it highlight it emphasizes your degree of being, your, your critical thinking, and also takes away the hero worshiping, because even the most famous people can publish things that aren't, that, that deserve critique. Yeah. And so it's such a, I mean, I would say actually it's a big change from like industry where, you know, people are like, okay, well, find some expert who says something and in whatever the expert said you go with or, or you sort of can refer to it. Whereas there was no respect for just because someone's famous, just because even they want a Nobel Prize, you still appropriately are, are super critical. And I kind of, I think there's an aspect that, that I resonated with. All right, Karen. So you headed off to lab. And what I thought was so interesting is, you know, in other words, you do a year of classes and then you go to lab at MIT. And then um, is that um, while you wound up in the lab of a researcher, Eric Lander, who is probably among the most famous, distinguished, um, uh, incredible scientists on the planet, 
now. At the time, he leads the Broad Institute. At the time, he was an aspiring geneticist with a, with a small lab. He's a Whitehead fellow, I think, uh, in a small lab at the Whitehead. And you told me you wound up working with him because essentially you couldn't get into another hyper-competitive lab run by <laughs> rising star cancer biologist Tyler Jacks. Do you care to elaborate? Yeah, I actually, so, you know, this is just like the evolution that you go through in grad school. Like, I thought I was going to be a structural biologist. I thought I was going to work for Peter Kim. This is, sort of had my, this is what I had in my little head. Then I thought, oh, I really like cancer, so, like, I'm going to go, like, work in Tyler's lab, because Tyler was, like, this rock star for the grad students. And But that was, like, super competitive. There were, like, three or four people already, like, signed up to rotate into his lab. And so I had taken this course, um, Mammalian Genetics, with Eric and Rudy Yanish. And I just really liked Eric. Like, and Eric's always been an amazing instructor. He's just, like, the clarity of his thought, the way he communicates, his energy. This, like, it's a criteria for him. It's incredible. He yeah. He's, like, so fun in the class and I just like loved his class so I was like okay well you know I really like Eric so I'm gonna go and check out his lab <laughs> so so you liked Eric but the lab experience was suboptimal so <laughs> Karen what was the nature of your soul crushing grad school experience <laughs> well you know it was like I mean it was honestly this is why I feel like School does not prepare you for real life. Like, school is so structured. And people tell you, you know, like, it's all about your learning, right? Like, you know, you read this stuff, write this stuff, do these, you know, do these exercises. It's all about learning. And I loved school. Like, I was a very diligent, like, happy student. But lab is nothing like school. You know, you're, like, in there cooking. You know, like, you're doing some stupid experiment. Like, you're running a gel and, like, didn't work. Oh, that's too bad. <laughs> you know? Let me do that again. Like, let me do that five more times. Or, you know, you'll be like deep into an experiment and like, oh yeah, my northern block stopped working for like three months. You know, <laughs> like, it's just like, it's just like preach, the mundanity preach. of it all. Like, it's like the failure, like the repeated failure. And it's not big, it's not glamorous. And yet you ended up as a VC. <laughs> you ended up as a VC where... You know, so many of the projects we back fail. I mean, it's kind of the same thing, but maybe it's different because it's somebody else's failure. Yeah, it's like, I think, you know, you ha- I, it teaches you a <laughs> deep respect for, like, nature. And, I mean, I still love, I love science and I love the scientific discussion. And I have a tremendous, tremendous, like, forever respect for people that can do research because I know how hard it is and how determined you have to be and how how like anally, retentively um, precise, right, you have to be, the level of rigor that you actually have to be to be a good scientist, right? You have to like completely bow down to that, right? So agree with all this. This is the most cathartic podcast we've ever done. Did you ever think about going back to journalism or just abandoning science at all? I No, altogether? I can't. You know, I never went back to that track. I And I have to say that like, I feel I feel like I was a bit of a misfit scientist, right? I wasn't like a natural scientist, but I have to say that I coming once I graduated, like once I got out of the tunnel, <laughs> you know, it was like inducing labor. It was like super painful, but once I was on the other end of that, I really felt like it really defined me and it really taught me how to think critically 
And I'm really happy. I'm really grateful for my father that he actually influenced me like that, even though it was like not what you would call the intrinsic path. You know, it wasn't like following my inner passion. I was, I was stuck. You know. So what was going through your, in grad school? This is such an interesting conversation. I certainly, I mean, I, I, whatever should pay you for this therapy session. <laughs> um, well, what was going through your head in grad school when you were feeling so miserable, but you still finished your PhD? What kept you going? Uh... You know, um, there were many times I say I just thought, "F it!" <laughs> you know, like, I, just, I just, I want, I want, I want this to be over. And somehow, I guess I never, I never was able. I was like, there was this inertia that was carrying me through, and I was never able to kind of come up with a better alternative for what. Like, I, I think that was partly it was I was just like grinding it out, and then you know, my husband was my. Who, who you met in husband, grad school. My, yeah, yeah my, my grad school boyfriend, um, he was a big part of it. Like, he was, like, there with me day in, day out. Like, we were supporting each other. And then... You guys are watching your gels fail together. Taekwondo, <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. And then, I don't know, you know. I think it, at some point, I just kind of had enough to graduate and... And somehow, like, the door opened, and I was able to walk through it. But I went through a long time where I was like, there's no door. There's no end to this. I don't like this. <laughs> you know? So how did, you, how did you go from there? So when you thought, okay, well, you knew what you didn't want to do. How did you – I want to talk about two things next. And um, how did you wind up at, at ProQuest, the VC you wound up joining? And then I want to hear about what your initial experience there was like because my understanding is that it wasn't just sort of like bells and, and fanfare and it was a lot more challenging. So how did you get there from grad school? And then what was your initial experience there like? I, um, there was a grad school uh, – there was a postdoc actually in the, in the Lander Lab with me, Doug Sambro. And this was like in 2001 and we're both like wrapping up and he's finishing his postdoc. I'm finishing my PhD. And we were having these like late night conversations about like what's next. As one does. And we're both, yeah, we were both like not more bench work. (laughs) (laughs) Cause we're just like, I was like, I'm going to like, Become suicidal, <laughs> you know. And Doug was probably thinking about it, but we're like, not more pent work. And so um, we're just casting about for what to do. And he actually ended up getting a job at, at Oxford Bioscience. And he's like, "Well, you know, I know this. I know this woman, Jean George, at Bank Boston Ventures, and you know, you could go intern for her." And I was like, "Okay, I'll go intern for her." And so I, when I was like writing up my dissertation. I would just like cross the river and go into Bank Boston and like consult for them. And, you know, I really didn't know what I was doing. Like they, but they had, they had some kind of science related investment ideas. And, and so they wanted someone that could just give them some technical feedback. And so I did that a little bit, like maybe a year. And um, when I was graduating, Gene actually knew Jay Morin at ProQuest. Like Bank Boston was actually an LP, like an investor in their fund. They were they were had closed one fund and they were just investing their second one. And so she put me in touch with Jay and I went down there and like interviewed and I just got along with everyone on a personal basis and she probably just said, Oh, Karen's not some crazy scientist. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, <laughs> and I had I really didn't know like what I was getting into, but I was like, okay, this is different. Like it's not bench work. (laughs) Let's try this. But it's so far removed from bench work. I mean, it's so different, right? I mean, being in a venture fund, 
you know, you're no longer generating the hypotheses, you know, by and large. You're no longer hands-on, you know, with the science. You're really looking at other people's ideas and, and efforts and deciding whether you believe. Going back to your methods and logic class, um, you know, was that the um, sort of the answer to your prayers? Was it just that the, the way you were doing science wasn't interesting to you? Or was it that this too was, you know, unsatisfying? How did you get comfortable with that complete change of, of hands-on effort? Yeah, well, I mean, it was um, it was helpful in that, you know, it was it was not didn't make it was not generating the data, which is was what I didn't want to do. Um, but it was a huge cultural change, huge cultural change from yeah, going from huge. MIT to going to ProQuest because it was very, it was a very business environment, and I was you know I was low man on the totem pole, so I was just reading all these business plans that were in my view like super intellectually shallow. <laughs> I was like, what is this, like, fluff? You know, it was, like, in the omics world where it was, like, the omics, the omics. Like, there was all these little buzzwords, and, like, there was no data, and it was a lot of, like, just marketing fluff. And I was like, I don't I don't understand, like, where the substance is. And so, like, I was very, um, I was very confused. And, like, I was like, I don't, I don't, I don't see the depth in this. I don't really understand, like, you know, I just felt a little bit, uh, unanchored, un I guess, for a while. I mean, what a crazy thing to be learning about genetics with Eric Lander, and then all of a sudden you're watching these people who, where it's sort of just all the superficial buzzwords and bullshit business plans, and you're like, what's going on here? Yeah, it was a lot. Of, I mean, it was, it was, you know, it was like, it was very much like there was a lot of talking, right? It was a lot of like, wow, there's a lot of talking, but there's not a lot of deep talking. <laughs> but did you find yourself, I mean, so you look at all these business, I mean, having, you know, the three of us have all been in this field. So I'm curious about coming from science into that, which is different than my path. You know, did you come in and look at, you know, was it, was it like you dismissed everything you saw, but then you found out you were wrong? There were things you missed because you thought they were too cursory or not all the way thought through or not scientific-y or whatever, but they were good and turned out? Or were you right in your assessments? Were you I think finding... I was right. Mm -hmm. No, I think I was right. <laughs> I, think, I think a lot of it was like really bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so funny. It's so funny, Karen, because I had almost a similar experience in initial intro to venture with through all these stem cells. I was in a stem cell postdoc lab, and then there was all this uh, stem cell stuff. And people were like, oh, is that going to be the new, new thing? And it's like, you know, there's a lot of stem cell excitement, but the way people are proposing to develop it is 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 very optimistic. What I thought was so interesting, Karen, is it sounds like one of your, your first really successful um, uh, private investments um, was also, um, you told me, an introduction to the um, uh, world of uh, the, the lack of gender diversity that exists um, uh, in, in VC um, uh, and inv involved, in your case, an investment that you led involving a birth control patch. Can you describe what that experience was like and, and how you... Uh, sort of navigated it? Yeah, the first, so the first board suit that I ever took for ProQuest was, I was the principal at the time, and I was, it was in, I think, 2006, and um, it was a birth control patch. It was sort of a, a follow-on to OrthoEvra, and uh, OrthoEvra was like the first birth control patch ever marketed, and I was actually an OrthoEvra user before it, it kind of got like a, it got like a, a black box label. So, um I knew that, like, oh, patch, I get it. That works. I like that. This is a better patch. It's a safer patch. It has the correct dose of estrogen and 
sort of the gold standard for safety on the progestin side. So I was like, makes complete and total sense to me. The market had been demonstrated by the ortho ever was like the most successful contraceptive launch in history. And so it kind of all, I could kind of put the jigsaw puzzle together in my mind. And so we um, invested in when the company was like in the phase two. And I was on that board for, um, I don't know, like 10 years. I went through my whole like young adulthood into motherhood on that board. I had two children <laughs> being the only woman on that board talking about birth control. <laughs> you know? And uh, Lisa's rolling her eyes. We, yeah, really. We went through the liquidity crisis together in 2009. And I realized when we were trying to raise phase three capital that like, most men don't understand birth control. <laughs> They're like, why would a woman want to use a patch? What? What? So, um, I actually, I don't know, I don't know if I told you, but I actually, I credit that deal for actually um, provoking the onset of labor for my second child. Did I mention that? <laughs> <laughs> because of your frustration with your board colleagues? I was like, we were, we were like in the depths of the liquidity crisis. The market was frozen. And uh, we had, I had asked one of my best friends to like try and help the company raise money. And so she was like doing what a good like sort of market that marketeer would do. She was like asking around to see like who, what was the word on the street about this company? And so she had asked like one of her good friends about um, Agile. And so she, she, we had gone to movies and she was just reporting back to me that like this woman had said, oh, Agile, Therapeutics, that ProQuest deal, that's so shocked. That's what she said. That's, it's, oh, that's so shocked, you know? And I was, I was like so upset because I was really, I was really sad for the company. We were like in this super struggling, difficult time. And like, we were all strung out, like, like we were like grasping for straws with management and I was like lying in my bed at four in the morning thinking, that is so unfair. Like, why does she call Agile shocked? You know, like, it's the fucking liquidity crisis. You know, <laughs> like, excuse me. Yeah, really. If, no one, yeah, excuse shop. me if we've gone to every account. You know, like, we're in like nuclear winter here. Okay, so yeah, it's shocked. Okay, I will admit it's shocked. But like, that's so unfair. You know, and I was just so angry. And then I like, I literally started having contractions. <laughs> <laughs> So let me ask you a question because I think I think you know you uh, and I both are uh, a two of uh, what amounts to eight percent of partners in VC who are female. Um, we all know that women's health companies get almost no capital from venture capital. Um, it's certainly related to this disconnect between what the partners tend to know well and what they're comfortable with versus you know what these companies do. Do you think that's changing at all? I mean, it's, of course, a ridiculous construct because medicine for men gets funded, you know, uh, by women venture capitalists all the time. So why, you know, do you think we're getting better about this as a, as a field, uh, even though we're not really getting much more in the way of women partners? Or is it just going to be the same forever? Um, I think that I think that venture largely follows pharma. And I think pharma, unfortunately, has moved away from primary care and sort of, you know, like, actually, actually, I take this back because women's health is OBGYN and it's very, it's specialty based, but pharma's kind of moved to sort of very high priced, you know, ex 
like high medical and me- and medical need mm-hmm. indications. And so, you On know, the, the extent that women's health isn't that flavor, I think that's partly the issue. You know, you can back a really kick-ass women's health company as long as you're willing to actually fund it all the way to commercialization and build specialty pharma, right? So if that's your thesis and that's your framework, you can go all the way. And I, and I, I would do that deal again, right? Like, it's a great category. But don't expect the early exit. That's all I would say on that front. So just to round this off, because we're almost we're kind of at the end of our time, but I do want to sort of just bring people up to up to the present. So your your career really took off, and then after a decade of ProQuest, and then several years when we were together at TVI, you are now a partner at Novo Ventures. Um, just in sort of like your last comment, what is is there one type of thing that you're most excited about now in the world of venture, and you know, in the deals that you're looking at? Is there one specific thing that excites you the most, or one area that you're especially intrigued by? I mean, I have to say that what, like, I mean, just what captures my imagination right now, which is not to say that I have a deal like that exactly fits it, is that I really like that this concept of the engineered cell space, where once you can get to, once you get past all the manufacturing grief, like once you're going allogenic, so you're not patient specific, it opens up, as a molecular biologist, I mean, it opens up so much ability to give new functionality to cells and then cells actually have a if you believe that cells know how to target in the human body like you might get the localization as well so i think that engineered cell space once you can get allogenic is going to be super interesting it is so interesting because I just came back from this, uh, you know, uh, American Society of Gene and Cell Therapy meeting in D.C., and it is so fascinating how, particularly I know what you're saying with allogenics platforms, how they're they're able, they're sort of they're, one is able to engineer so many different aspects. Oh, you want some local inflammation? You can add it. You can sort of add this functionality. You want to remove something else? You can sort of remove that. And there's, it just seems like the beginning of a super exciting journey. Well, anyway, Karen, thank you so much for joining us today. Outstanding show. Um, it's just your, your journey is a, it highly resonant and uh, inspiring as ever. And um, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. My pleasure. Take care. I love uh, listening to her. It's so interesting. You know, and, and she and I have such an exact shared journey, the journalism, Berkeley, except for math. The big difference in our, <laughs> in our common existence is, is math. I... Um, but it is interesting to hear. Um, and it's also struck me, and we didn't really talk about it, but just how different uh, pharmaceutical venture capital is, biotech venture capital is, from the other side of healthcare venture capital. Tell me what you mean. IT and services. Well, um, the comment she made about the shift away from primary care is the exact opposite of what's going on in healthcare services right now. Healthcare services, the shift is all in on primary care and massive amounts of investing going on there and less so in some of the specialty areas of, um, you know, medicine, IT, et cetera, the very big focus on how do you engage with people early in their, you know, That is so illness. interesting. That's yeah. very, very interesting. Well, um, uh, you can follow Lisa Sunin's uh, writings at VentureValkyrie.com. And you can follow David's writing at Forbes. Um, Please remember to rate us on iTunes and leave a comment to help others discover the show. 
We're grateful to our sponsor, Metadata. Metadata, the intelligent platform for life sciences that closes the loop between clinical development and commercialization to power smarter treatments and healthier people. Tectonics is produced by Connected Social Media and recorded in Tectonics Studio B in Mill Valley, California. To the next 100 shows, Lisa. Ring the bell, baby.